know, 80% of the chronic diseases of this world are from your behavior. And so ultimately, until you change your behavior, whether you have a normal scan or whether you've had a heart attack, I'm sorry to tell you, your risk of developing an abnormal scan and your risk of having another heart attack remains significant until you decide to do something. So, you know, traditional medicine, we tell you what to do. You get 15 minutes if you're lucky in the room and you get a bunch of tablets and off you go. I tell you, you need to lose weight. I tell you, you need to stop smoking. A year later, you're bigger, you're smoking twice as much. So ultimately, I kind of identified you really need to do something more. Time was a factor. The model, traditional model, doesn't work. You really need to do it differently. And then along the way, I was introduced to the field of lifestyle medicine, which allowed me to integrate something quite different in terms of behavior. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald, and you're host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. Conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and you're welcome to our first podcast in 2024. And I'm sure everybody is having fun with their New Year's resolutions. And we decided that we would focus on health and lifestyle for the start of the year. And our topic today is lessons from the heart. And we're speaking to a cardiologist coach, Dr. Robert Kelly, who is an associate professor of cardiology at UCD Beacon Hospital, who has trained and practiced in cardiology in the US, UK and Europe, and has published over 50 papers in peer-reviewed journals. Robert's a huge advocate of lifestyle medicine, and has studied mind, body, and health at Harvard Medical School, and now co-owns RK Cardiology Healthy Living, which delivers coaching for individuals to improve their health and well-being. Robert strongly advocates lifestyle interventions based on a wealth of evidence-based studies showing reversal of diabetes, improvements in blood pressure control, stress reduction, sleep improvements that reduce heart attack, stroke, and cancer risks. And Robert also has a new book coming out, called Lessons from the Heart, How to Live a Long and Healthy and Happy Life. And uh, just one stat before we start, the evidence shows 80% of chronic diseases are lifestyle driven. So changing your lifestyle can save your life. So let's learn more. So Robert, as we do on the podcast all the time, I ask this question, tell us a little bit about your younger formative years, key influences and the values you believe you gained from your upbringing. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So I grew up in Jalorgan in Dublin. I am the eldest son of my parents who were both surgeons. My mother is an eye surgeon and my late father was a kidney surgeon. I have three siblings and unfortunately I lost one sibling at the age of 21 who died from sudden death, which probably had a huge impact on where I've come to in life. And also in hindsight, it's probably had a huge impact in why I do what I do. Certainly as a child of uh, two surgeons, medicine was definitely a talking point uh, around the dinner table in most aspects of life. We would spend Sunday mornings going around with dad around the wards in the hospital in Vincent's where he worked and meet some of the patients and those sort of things. And they always kind of created values to us of, of working very hard and uh, really keeping a focus, being very grateful for what we had, because clearly we grew up very nicely. And then we also had uh, a lot of time for family and a lot of time for friends. And 
spent a lot of time really trying to be nice to everybody, which is something I felt strongly about and something that I've really taken on board throughout my career. So from that uh, fantastic upbringing, you obviously progressed to become a cardiologist. And tell us about that journey then and getting into the field and learning more and how that brought you then in the end to where you are now in coaching. So I went to school in Dublin, and then I went to the College of Surgeons as a medical student. I graduated from there in 1992. I went on to my initial training in Beaumont Hospital, and I ended up in cardiology about three years on from that. I was very much attracted to a specialty of medicine that had an acute impact. So the idea of saving somebody's life who was having a heart attack and ultimately spending what I thought would be more time doing that but realizing that the, the cause of the condition was really where I would end up spending all my time, uh, although I still do procedures on patients to save them from having heart attacks and treating them for that. And then I went to the UK and did a, a master's in, in clinical pharmacology. I ended up back in Ireland to do some latter parts of my training. And then I went to North Carolina, where I worked as a, a fellow in cardiology and interventional cardiology. And then I stayed out there as a consultant, became an associate professor of medicine, and then I came back to Ireland and, you know, at that time, which was back in the mid to late 2000s, I, there weren't a lot of public health jobs in cardiology. And so I ended up going into the private sector directly as one of probably the third cardiologists in the whole country that had ever done that. And really, ironically, that set off a whole new wave of uh, change because there's a lot of my colleagues now who followed me into exactly the same path. Now, where I am now is I am a full-time private practice cardiologist, but in the last couple of years, a lot has changed. So in 2007, when I came back to Ireland, in 2008, Apple launched the iPhone for the first time in Ireland. We were using a PAM pilot, if anybody remembers that. We used to use them in practice because we couldn't remember all the drug doses that patients should be on. So we used to go on to the PAM pilot to identify that or to call each other. We still had a pager in our pockets to know where we had to be to see or deal with certain emergencies. So the iPhone came out in Ireland a year into my practice. And then you got all the social medias to the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and everything else. And I was now in an entirely different world to what I had trained in and what I had practiced in. And that definitely has had a huge bearing of where my life and my practice has evolved. But the big change for me is that through my years, having encountered patients where I spend most of my time, I learn an awful lot from patients. I'm very creatively minded. I'm very innovatively minded in terms of making changes for people. And while it's great putting stents in patients, they still come back with chest pains. They still come back with multiple problems. Patients have normal scans of their heart and go, well, sure, I'm cured. I don't need to do anything. And the reality is the reason why you got sick in the first place is significant. And as you mentioned, and so ultimately, until you change your behavior, whether you have a normal scan or whether you've had a heart attack, I'm sorry to tell you, your risk of developing an abnormal scan and your risk of having another heart attack remains significant until you decide to do something. So, you know, traditional medicine, we tell you what to do. You get 15 minutes if you're lucky in the room and you get a bunch of tablets and off you go. I tell you, you need to lose weight. I tell you, you need to stop smoking. A year later, you're bigger, you're smoking twice as much. And so ultimately, I kind of identified you really need to do something more. Time was a factor. The model, traditional model doesn't work. You really need to do it differently. And then along the way, I was introduced to the field of lifestyle medicine, which allowed me to integrate something quite different in terms of behavior. And then also there are other areas of medicine. There's one called whole health care, which is an American model, 
it's practiced in the VA system in terms of helping veterans deal with a number of different behavior issues. And so I saw an opportunity in that model to uh, incorporate it into cardiology practice where I could be a cardiologist and I could also be a health coach because I could do the cardiology aspect, the physical health, but I had to acknowledge that health was much more than the physical health. And that's led me into this and it's led me into coaching. And ultimately, I absolutely passionately, as you said, enjoy the lifestyle medicine component of helping people because through coaching, I can genuinely help people much more than the other things I do. And it's really interesting when you talk about, you know, people getting into the healthcare profession and just getting that 10 to 15 minutes with somebody and prescriptions, and then the behavior change doesn't happen. And and that must be really challenging for health professionals who went into the field to help others and, and really maybe don't see the the sustainable difference that they can make to people. And 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 this term of lifestyle medicine is is new to me. I, I was unfamiliar with it until I started researching your work. So explain to me what is lifestyle medicine and for the, the listeners out there. And, and I, I gather there are some pillars associated with it. So lifestyle medicine is, first of all, it's evidence-based. So it's like cardiology. It's like any other space in medicine. It is not a social media phenomenon. So it's really important to highlight that. And so lifestyle medicine deals with the idea that you can prevent, you can treat, you can potentially reverse chronic diseases as a consequence of interventions such as behavior change, such as motivation, such as aspects of activity, eating, those types of things. And so ultimately, because we said you can reverse chronic diseases, and lifestyle medicine hugely emphasizes that you need to look after yourself. So there's a huge self-care aspect of it, which is critical. It also requires that you coach patients as part of the way it's delivered. So it's very, very different to other aspects of medicine. And then the you mentioned pillars. So there are six pillars that lifestyle medicines relate to. In some parts of the world, there's a few other pillars that are added on. But for the audience, the chief pillars are number one, your physical activity. So exercise in the world of cardiology, in the world of all health, we recommend that patients should be exercising approximately 30 minutes every day, between 150 minutes and 180 minutes of a week moderately paced, so moderate walking as an example, you're able to talk to the person beside you, just about able to talk. That's the basic recommendation, whether you decide to do it in steps, that's absolutely fine. But the idea is to be active because, you know, for this audience, if you are inactive and you sit in front of your screen or your phone on your chair all day, believe it or not, that actually increases your risk of having a heart attack by about 10 to 15%. So even when you're working from home and lots of people are working very, very long, you would be amazed to learn that the other risk factor is if you're working in your chair again for longer than 55 hours a week, in certain professions, your heart attack risk goes up to about 20%. Your stroke risk goes up to over 30%. So physical activity is really, really important. Physical activity is very important for longevity. It's very important for overall health. And just on that, Robert, you know, I, I'm one of those people going from Zoom call to Zoom call or team call to team call. And how we structure our day now in comparison to, you know, what we would have done in the past, because I've just talked about stuff on a program I'm doing about structured work weeks versus messy work days, because people are now at home. If you were to give some practical advice to the business people who listen to this, what can we do on a daily basis to just bring that to reality for ourselves? You, you mentioned 30 minutes activity, which I might do when I finished work. 
Do we need to take breaks during the day and, and what's best advice in that space? So one of the aspects of coaching, because you might say I'm very, very busy, is that I've always looked for simple ways to solve problems because simple ways I understand it and that if I understand it, I can teach you or I can show you. So one of the most simple ways to deal with behavior change is to make tiny little steps. And there is a wonderful guy in Stanford University called BJ Fogg who wrote a book about using tiny habits to make behavior change. So I've done a program with him. I'm very much involved with his group and colleagues of his group. And I have applied that model, which I call small steps to your behavior change. So 30 minutes of exercise can be two minutes for 15 times in your day, can be one minute 30 times in your day. And so, you know, ideally, if you're sitting down on the Zoom call, you should get up after the hour of the Zoom call. You should move about. You should go outside and get some fresh air before you come back to the next Zoom call. You should do things like, one of the work things I came across recently is to do your emails at one time of the day. Just put aside, say, 30 minutes, do your emails, turn the emails off, and don't go near them again until the next day. Another particular step which is useful is lock yourself in a room with your tasks you have to do. Turn off your phone, tell your secretary or whoever you're not to be disturbed, and deal with them. Because if you spend the day rushing around trying to do lots of different tasks, Believe you me, you'll have nothing done at the end of the day or you'll have very little done. You're kind of wasting a lot of time. And so those sort of efforts are very good for your productivity. They're very good because you won't be as stressed. Getting outside will clear your head. I had a patient yesterday. She works in a bank in Dublin. She put on a bit of weight. She has a lot going on in her life. And she told me what she used to do every morning was to park the car about three or four miles away from she worked and she'd walk into work. So I said to her yesterday, you used to do that. You found it easy to do. You like doing that. Park the car three or four miles away from her. Or park the car one mile away from work and start that way. Go two miles in the week after and go to a distance where you, it works for you. So making those small, small steps, not big ones, tiny little things. For some of you, it might be as much as just standing up from your chair for a moment or two. Uh, one of the tricks just when you do small steps, which is critical for you to acknowledge, and you may find it quite difficult, is you have to celebrate or put a little bit of a smile on your face when you do it. Because believe it or not, the thing that makes behavior habitual is how you feel. If you feel good about doing it and it brings you joy, you will continue to do it. It will become a habit. If you do not enjoy it, we all know this because some people hate going to the gym or doing other types of physical activities, you will never sustain doing it. In a behavior change, when going back to circuit classes, I've developed that habit now twice a week and the social connection and the group and the fun makes me want to go back. I'm feeling that I'm getting fitter, but I'm also enjoying it rather than it's painful. And it can be painful at the start of the year like this year and say you might have uh, eaten or drank a little bit too much over the Christmas. So what are the other pillars then that you talk about, Robert? So the other pillars, so healthy eating is a huge pillar for want of a better description. The next pillar is stress reduction, emotional health. The next pillar is sleep. And the next two pillars, so addictions, they would relate to smoking, drug use or misuse, alcohol consumption. And then the last pillar, you just mentioned it, is the power of social connection. And the power of social connection is extraordinary, particularly since COVID, because people are very aware that we were cocooned, we were isolated. And a lot of people, particularly older people, have not come out of their houses since COVID, uh, are very fearful of, 
you know, new outbreaks of COVID and the risk it might do to their health. But there is a wonderful study that came out of the UK just before Christmas called the UK Biobank Research Group, which looked at the impact of isolation as a risk factor, again, for heart disease and for death. So people who are very lonely and very isolated with very little social connection have about a 40% higher risk for premature death compared to people who are very social. Now, the other thing about sociable and that particularly research, and it's interesting, it was time before Christmas, is that the greatest benefit to your social connection is spending time with your own family. And it's much more powerful than going out with your friends or joining a group or joining a club. So your relationship, for example, with your siblings, with your children, your grandchildren, your parents, is something to be really encouraged of you to do. And that might mean a phone call every night to your mother. That might mean a connection, meeting your family for occasions. That might mean simple things for work. Another very simple, practical step would be making time in the morning to actually have breakfast with your spouse or having breakfast with your children, making time for that, making time for a family meal at the evening that you're home for dinner, that the phones are switched off, and that you're doing practical options to talk to each other. And, you know, for example, lowering your stress level is another pillar just by doing things that you like things that are very good for you, and things that you lose time on because if you work all the time, you don't get the time back to spend the time with your children or spend the time with your spouse. So they are really, really critical points. Some people miss out on that, how the social connection piece is as much to your own family right in front of you and to yourself. There was a lot of wisdom in the way we used to live pre-mobile phones and pre-technology. And I'm thinking of where I grew up and and people coming in with an open door policy and my mother welcoming people with a cup of tea. And and there was this, you know, the heart, uh, you know, (laughs) back to the open heart of the fire and people would talk around that at night and share stories and social connection. I'm just wondering, you know, those habits and routines that it brought so much wisdom and then we lost so much during COVID. And I know there's an inquiry around, you know, how we locked down and was that healthy for us or did that impact people, you know, and will that impact people for years to come now as a result or what's your view on that? I think COVID is very interesting. When COVID first uh, broke out, you'll also recall that we were very sociable. We were very generous. We were very grateful. We were very altruistic. We helped our neighbor. We got about a year into COVID, that seemed to disappear or maybe, maybe the attention was directed somewhere else. So We had a number of values, particularly as Irish people, that are extraordinary. We still have those. We're very generous in terms of donating to charities. So there are aspects to us that we tend perhaps to hide or we don't have an opportunity to use them as as a priority. We all get stuck back in the job. Our focus is on other aspects of life or we don't prioritize health. And I think that COVID was an exception. I think that COVID... Yes, we, in hindsight, could have done things differently. I think it was managed as best as one could. It was completely uh, isolated in terms of nobody had ever been exposed to anything like that before. And I do think, yes, it's exposed weaknesses in the health system that were always there. I think the social connection piece has probably always been there. I think it's interesting. A lot of the burnout work is a good example. Burnout in healthcare professions was there long before COVID came along. What COVID did very usefully for aspects of lifestyle is it clearly promoted the fact or raised the awareness that, you know, we all eat perhaps emotionally. We do things emotionally, drinking consumption of alcohol increased, eating increased. Some people found little steps to maintain physical activity, even if you had to socially distance. 
people became much more aware of mental health. And sadly, amongst professional groups, particularly amongst medical groups, you saw a much higher rate of suicide and subsequent sleep deprivation and mental health issues. So I think COVID is positive in that way. It did help to identify problems. But like everything else, I think the challenge is actually four years on from COVID, whether we're actually doing anything with what we learned during COVID. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. I suppose bringing that into the workplace and the people we work with who are busy people and I guess this whole idea of burnout and being hard on yourself. You talked about behavior change there. And I think there was a life message when I was definitely growing up, which was work hard and you will succeed. And sometimes you overwork and you overprove and you can't say no to things. For people like that who just you know, chat their diaries each week and they want to be as busy because they believe that that's overproving to others that they can be successful and get to a place. And then my generation, for example, I'm in my mid 50s versus now the younger generation who are coming up and they're looking at this and saying, well, hold on a second, there's a better way to maybe live and and I don't need to to work hard to succeed and I want a better work-life balance. And And I just see that maybe they are going to drive behavior change within organizations because this is where the conflict might happen with leaders and younger people coming into the organizations. Are you seeing any of that? Let me share an example. So yesterday I did a Q&A with a corporate law firm in the UK. I was asked to do it because the senior partner had a cardiac event, having had a medical that didn't pick up anything because he's fit, he's active. He says he eats well didn't realize he might have been stressed, which is very relevant. And then subsequently had a cardiac event, had a narrowing in an artery that's associated with a high risk of sudden death and ended up getting treated. Found the whole experience very traumatic. And then he burnt out in work 18 months later. And he's now on a return to work and he works in an area which is corporate law, where corporate law is money driven. Now, corporate lawyers are the same as finance workers. They're the same as professionals. There is a massive personality in this, which is all about perfection. And it's all about being the very best at what you do. And there is no room for anything else. And there is no room for any other aspect of your life. There's this massive paradox that goes with being perfect versus being healthy. It's largely money-driven, unfortunately. And I think that that is a concern. The other interesting thing in professions, I mentioned it about doctors, it's the same in other professions is that the younger people coming into these organizations are more stressful. And some of them find it's very hard to cope in that environment. Some of them are not necessarily equipped with those skills. COVID has had some bearing on that. And you will identify, at least amongst lawyers, a much higher rate of suicide and a much higher rate of mental health issues, which do not serve well when added to the culture, when added to other health issues, And unfortunately, I think a lot of those younger people will end up getting sicker earlier in their careers than later in their careers. And I think the interesting thing is you're the employer. 
you're going to say, well, hang on a second, the middle group of yours and my age group are getting acutely unwell, we're burning out. The group behind us are mentally challenged, have struggled issues. We may have a suicide risk. We may have other behavioral risk. So we don't have a success line. And so then we're going to be in trouble until somebody decides that health should be a priority and that perhaps the work week or the work model needs change, that it goes away from all about productivity or has some way that perhaps there's a smarter way to pay people more productive that doesn't sort of uh, stop your uh, margins, doesn't stop your financial achievement as a company. But I think, you know, until that changes, ironically, you think the younger group are going to be the saviors of the world. Yes, a lot of them are very interested in lifestyle. Yes, a lot of them are educated to the fact that they know an awful lot. But the reality of the world is they don't have a clue how to apply what they know. And the big world is where we all get into trouble, no matter what profession or no matter what education you come from. And a lot, as you said, before the mobile phone, we had very strong values as to how we grew up in our families. That was really important to us all. And unfortunately, the mobile phone has killed a lot of that for, for many, many people. There's a lot of people out there who say it should be done this way and not that way. We're moving through a rapid change in technology that we now have artificial intelligence, which means you won't even have to think about anything anymore. It'll tell you what to do. And so I'm not entirely sure until we actually make changes, probably collectively, that, that an awful lot is going to get better rather than either stay the same or potentially get worse. And I know you have a coaching program that you bring people through. And I, I'd like to, to learn a bit more about that because I think there might be applications for what you're doing with your patients from a coaching perspective with organizations and the cultures that they want to create a healthy environment for people to thrive. So maybe bring us through a typical coaching program if I was on one with you. So at the moment, I run a coaching program where I get a group of people. So we take the corporate example. So I would tend to go in and give a talk about heart health, about the work situation, because those pillars, the, the stress pillar is an example. While you have a significant increased risk of chronic stress and heart disease, you can see that the root of the stress often will come from work or it may come from home. It may come from trying to do lots of different things. Sleep is interesting. That has a significant increased risk for heart disease. Sleep deprivation is because you're stressed, you're really busy, you're doing lots of other things in life, like eating late, drinking late, and so you don't sleep so well and you can't function, and then you also burn out. And the inactivity and the eating as well as, as applied have a bearing on how you work. So they all increase your risk for heart disease. I like to identify people who don't have a physical health risk initially. So for example, like the law talk that you're not gonna have a heart attack. And then I like to deal with the root of the problem by coaching. And so what I do is I get a group of people to do an online program with me. So the program is delivered. I have a platform. It has six different video learning uh, presentations, which identify what your health goal is. So where you identify the pillars, some area that you think you're most in need of dealing with first. So maybe you're very inactive. Maybe you're very overweight. Maybe you're not sleeping so well. Uh, you pick one of then I try to work through you in a little bit of a novel way where I'll use vision boards to help you identify things in life that you really care about in your life. And that's just not health. That could be your family. That could be going on holidays. That could be a new house. That could also be about a health goal. Try to bring that together because it does influence the power of your mind to think about what you want in life. But also when you look at that every day, it has a hugely powerful impact on what happens in your life. And then I help you with identifying goals to reach and behaviors to help you deliver on what you're trying to change. 
I use the power of the small steps and the habits to actually make that happen. And so I work that over eight to 10 weeks with groups. Usually the groups vary in size. I do do it for corporations where I just take them and don't bring in anybody else. I do it for patients together. And then I Zoom the group every single week with me. And then I also do a Q&A every second week with the group where there, there may be more questions to address. And then I will take individuals one-to-one, say once or twice during the period of the coaching. So I have an online platform, as I said, it does have a private community based around it so that you can interact with other people for more information. And ultimately, the program has been very successful. I run it with the staff in the hospital. It's very interesting that when you engage the people, and this is something that comes out again and again, is that when you do actually value your employees, and lifestyle medicine is a great one to do this with, I had the, the hospital survey this and, and see what the impact of the program was. And the increased awareness had a massive impact on the productivity of the staff. Now, these are our senior managers in hospitals. I've had the same experience with patients. I've had the same experience with other groups. It really is impactful. It's really, really worthwhile. And the vision board experience has been very interesting. I've had a number of people realize things on their vision board. So uh, one of the nurses who was on the vision board recently managed to, she visualized a PhD within a couple of years, which has happened. She had some issues with fertility. She visualized a newborn baby within a certain period of time. She had a baby three months ago. And every single thing she put in her vision board has happened for her. Every single thing. So it's, and one of the interesting things about doing vision boards is I'd always think that men would be a little bit soft and say, well, that's not for me. And I'm a male doctor coach teaching you this. It's, it's extraordinary. I have one as well. It's just, it's extraordinary the impact it has. It doesn't lend itself to everybody, but it's, it's something that's very, very new, something very different for me to do. And it really, really helps people. So there are some newer aspects. And we look at engagement in organizations and it's always traditionally low in the Gallup study around 23% globally. And I think it's something like 13% in Europe in the most recent studies. And also seen in recent research at the end of the year, where what people want now is more development around things like health, career management, financial advice from their organization rather than just coaching and development and how to be a better manager. So it's the intrinsic things that people are more interested now in, and it will keep them more connected and motivated and celebrating success, as you talk about, because ultimately what I've seen are people who are working very hard and in burnout phase, and then they, you know, they come to the start of a year like this and say, geez, it's going to be another year. And what, what am I looking forward to? And I think something like what you're doing helps people to have that sense of purpose and direction and excitement about a new year. Absolutely. I think one of the things you've got to understand is that uh, purpose is a huge factor in how long you live in life. And without purpose, like as much as when you're older, or your parents are older, getting out of bed every day and moving around is an enormous purpose to keep you alive or having goals that you set that are very specifically timed, you know, that I will achieve something by the 1st of February, 2024, as an example. So, you know, aligning yourself with your goals gives you purpose. It gives you a reason to do things. You know, if you don't have that, I'm afraid you'll just be wandering aimlessly. You will sit back, as the example is given, in 2025 with the same kind of frame of mind. So I think that's a really, really critical factor for people to understand. And I just want to come back to food and healthy eating again, because when I go to my supermarket, you know, you're attracted to the processed foods and the 
easy stuff and the quick stuff rather than the healthier stuff. Any guidance around that and how we can, you know, because obviously the world is there to sell us lots of stuff. How do you help people to take more control of their eating? Because that can be a challenge for me. I can go out and do great stuff in the gym and then come back and, oh, I'm going to treat myself to something after this and I might undo the good stuff that I've done for the last hour. So I think it's everything we've spoken about is, is very much linked on trying to learn how to slow down a little bit in life and trying to learn how to just, you know, pause for a moment or two. Try to be a little bit more mindful in your approach to life. There's no point rushing. When you rush, you tend to make mistakes. So if you get into that frame of mind that you walk into a shop and you say, well, you know what, I want a cup of coffee, but I'm conscious for this year, my goal is to be a bit more healthy. Yes, you see the croissants in the line of sight and the jam and the butter right beside you. And you kind of go, no, you know what? No, I'm not going to have that. If I want something, I have something else. And ironically, if you don't think about it for about 60 seconds, it's gone. One of the most amazing things, for example, about drinking a cup of coffee is that you get the impact of the cup of coffee when you buy it long before you actually put the coffee, you, before you taste the cup of coffee. It's extraordinary the way we all behave in that way, and it's all habitual. So if your goal is around becoming more healthy, there are ways to do things. But the most important thing is to swap it with something. I think the challenge around the shop is, I'll give you a good example of that finger pointing where I work, but I have bumped into people with little three-year-old children. As you say, the line of size is chocolate. The line of size is weak. If you look at certain brands of soft drink, you can now get your name on a soft drink. So you can have Robert's can of such and such. I do think there's a big issue around that. There's a big issue around labeling. There's a big issue around understanding what a label is. There's a big issue of people understanding what they should and shouldn't eat. And there's a big educational component that people don't get. But again, as I've said, most people know that certain things are bad. Most people do. And yes, you know, the biggest thing, be it in the business world or the medical world or in life, that so-called knowing-doing gap is there. And so we all know what to do on the 1st of January. The sad thing is we find a way not to do it. And I think that is still what it comes down to, regrettably, be it the shops, be it wherever you go, it's your choice as to whether you eat the things that are there, despite the fact that the shop is trying to sell you everything that they possibly can. Yeah, I mean, all of these solutions are really quite simple uh, to conceive, but it's the the knowing doing gap, the the accountability and the intention, I guess, and having that purposeful vision of what you want to become. And it's something that struck me, you know, when I'm standing in front of an audience, I don't want to be that overweight mid fifties person who's coaching people to live a better life and have a better career. And that was one of the drivers for me was to make sure that I was fit when I was walking in in front of an audience and and I think that's that's an important thing for leaders as well, you know, to have that commitment to your health as much as your career. I think it's important, though, that you're human. So I've always said, and I say it in the book as well, that I am not a saint. I don't want anybody to think I'm a saint, that I'm perfect, that I have five portions of vegetables, two of fruits, that I don't eat any meat, that I go to bed at 10 o'clock every night, that I don't drink any alcohol that I don't take any exercise and that I sit in front of the desk and I tell you all what to do and I do none of it myself. So, you know, like everybody else, I am a sinner. And I've said previously that a little bit of everything is good for you. So if you want a glass of wine, I don't have a problem with that. But I do have a problem if you're on a bottle of wine every night of the week. If you are doing exercise, moving around is better than sitting around. That's a starting point. The same is true of all the other behaviors. It's about starting somewhere and it's about continuing. 
Yes, accountability is critical. Yes, having accountability and support with the right group of friends is very helpful. Yes, writing things down can be a very good reminder and get you doing things. But, you know, ultimately it's down to you. And I think that you're right. You kind of have to practice what you preach. Uh, I think that's really important for leaders. I think it's really important for leaders in terms of the human aspect to show that they actually value health. And I think that if you value your own health, you will value the health of the people who work with you. But I think that if you kind of take a tongue in cheek, I think, unfortunately, the damage will probably be more to you than it will be to the intended audience that you have in front of you. And I know that you lecture in the RCSI on this new program on lifestyle medicine and positive health coaching for non-medical people. So bring us a little bit of insight into that, because obviously you're pioneering and, and innovative and have brought this to Ireland. So I am a senior lecturer in the College of Surgeons and a, an academic professor in UCD as well. So the interest in the College of Surgeons is that a lot of people do lifestyle medicine practices with it in the university. So for example, the personal trainer in the gym, they have two gyms. They have a gym for men and a gym for women, primarily because they have a lot of people from the Middle East who are students. So they have to respect that. So the personal trainer for both sides teaches them pillars of lifestyle medicine as part of staying healthy and staying well. They have an academic program for undergraduates in lifestyle medicine, which I was involved with the idea that it was time for lifestyle medicine to be taught in the early years in medical school so that perhaps five years' time, the doctors coming out as the new interns and the new SHOs would actually practice lifestyle medicine with patients. So asking you questions about how much exercise, et cetera, et cetera, but also the idea to drive it through the medical school was to get the medical students to do it on themselves. And then at a postgraduate level, the College of Surgeons has a number of different lifestyle medicine programs aligned with other teaching uh, faculties. So they have a department that's new in positive psychology that's very much around a certain model from a psychologist in Philadelphia called Martin Seligman. And it's very much based on a positive attitude to life, relationships, meaning in your life, which is very similar to aspects of lifestyle medicine. And they have actually done a lot of work to show the two of them kind of interrelate very successfully. And my anecdotal story about this is that I met the current president of the American Society of Lifestyle Medicine in America at a meeting in Harvard many, many years ago when I was at that stage of trying to learn what was lifestyle medicine all about. And then I said to her, I said, you know what, it'd be wonderful if you came to Ireland. We're a small country. There are so many people here could benefit from this. And I went to the president of the College of Surgeons at the time, and I said to him, I said, Carl, I'd love to bring this lady to Ireland. I really think she could impact here. I really think this is the way forward. And, and he said to me, you know, I think that's a great idea. And, and the morning she came over, he said to me, I was really, really worried here, Robert. I thought you were going to bring a celebrity from social media from the West Coast of America in here to start telling all the academics how we should all be doing this and doing that. So her relationship with the college has been tremendous. She's a very close personal friend of mine. And, and really her drive in that part of the world is, 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 is massive and it's hugely transformed. And so the consequence of this is a lot of the GPs who are coming into practice at the moment, and I mean in their hundreds, are hugely motivated in this area. It really relates to them. It really relates to their practice. And so you'll see there's a huge drive in terms of those aspects and different aspects of health. Uh, menopause is a, a good example of where lifestyle medicine has a huge amount of value, clearly in all the pillars we've spoken about. So there's a lot of interest. Yes, there's more females interested in it who want to make the time around their working week. So they're very good role models because they're genuinely a little bit kind of more active. They live in the real world. They try around their eating. They try around their children. 
and ironically, a lot of them are more stressed out, but the irony is that it's very applicable to anybody who works in any walk of life. It's, it's not just that the doctors are different. We're all the same people. So uh, that's my little experience. I still teach on the positive psychology lifestyle medicine program. That's a very interesting bunch of people because they're not all doctors, as you say. I did it recently. There was a restaurateur on it last year. He's gone on to try and promote that. She hasn't switched to a vegetarian restaurants yet. And there's a lot of other people from different walks of life. There's a chemist in Carlo who's become very interested in the whole aspect. He likes to teach the customer a little bit more about lifestyle rather than dispensing all the medications. There's a lot of different people from different walks of life who may be interested. And they have a wonderful coaching program as well to try and instill a lot of this and help people do it. It might come a day perhaps that some people want to do this and become the champion in the workplace actually deliver this, that, that somebody there might be that person. We live in hope. I can see huge opportunities for, for champions of, uh, of this in organizations. And lastly, Robert, then you have a new book coming out. So what can we expect in the new book and when is it going to hit the shelves? So the new book is due out at the end of this month. It's called Lessons from the Heart, How to Live a Long, Happy and Healthy Life. Uh, the book is literally what we've discussed for the last uh, hour. And very much takes the whole heart health approach of addressing cardiology and addressing lifestyle medicine and addressing the consequences of it and then teaching you how to make changes. And ironically, at the end of the book, there is a nice page or two that describes exactly how to take up a different pillar in a very simple way, in a very practically explained way. So that book is coming out, as I said, at the end of the month. It's times that way. Most people, I'm afraid, will have broken your New Year's resolution, probably about 95% of you. The standard date is the 21st of January. I've tried to push for the book to come out soon after that, uh, really to coincide and help you get beyond the 21st of January 2024, maybe as far as the 21st of January 2025. I can guarantee you, if you follow what's in the book, you'll have a much greater success than you might see in the next 10 days. Well, you have a great practical way of sharing live examples. And obviously, as a practitioner for many years, you have lots of people that you've met and stories, I'm sure, that will embellish the content that you share in the book. Before you go, any books that you recommend or a podcast that you'd recommend that people might listen to? So I, um, in terms of the podcast, I do have a coach of my own. And I encourage people to do that. I have a coach who's a mindset coach. He's based in the UK. His name is Mindy Paul. He has a podcast, very good podcast. Now, he's very direct and he's very blunt. He uses a little bit of bad language, but he delivers. He gets into your head and he's the type of person that I actually do enjoy. And I've been around a lot of the different offerings that he has with other people. So I like his podcast. I like what he talks about. It's largely about the business world. It's largely about success. And most success in the business world is about financial freedom. But believe it or not, number two is time freedom. That's what we all want, those two things. So I've taken a lot of what they teach in the business world, and I've applied that to health. But those of you who listen in can see that, but I apply it primarily to the health goal. So the other aspect of that mindset work is it's usually based on work from the likes of Bob Proctor, and there is a wonderful, wonderful business book, if nobody has read it, called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. The book has been around for centuries. It is one of the most impactful books in the business world. And it's really something to read at every age. But the most impactful thing for me in that book was to take the learnings of that book and apply it to your health as a goal, because health is part of your success as much as making money, as much as your time freedom. And ironically, as I said, there are multiple aspects to your life that all relate to each other. So I think that book stands out. There's another book in that teaching. It's a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. 
Psycho-Cybernetics is a fascinating book. It's written by a German plastic surgeon. His name is Maxwell Maltz. And for those of you who are listening, these books were written 70 and 80 years ago. These are not books that are fresh off the shelf on your Amazon or on your Spotify. These books have been around for decades. Psycho-Cybernetics is written by a plastic surgeon who worked out for the facelifts that the patients were receiving, a bit like me putting the stents in, that the patients were coming back no happier with their external appearance than they were before they had the facelift. And so he worked out at the latter stage of his career that he was going to stop operating, and he was going to focus on people's self-image and try and help people to understand that it's all from inside and it's not what your friends think about you. And it's not how you look. And then I suppose the only problem with that book is social media wasn't around to show the impact that might have on your external image. But it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book in terms of your own self-care and your own self-insight. I like that book because it's written by a surgeon. And because it's written by a doctor, I, I can relate a little bit to it. And I can relate very much to what I said about Napoleon Hill's book. Oh my God, that book sounds like it should be reading for every uh, child. Absolutely. And buy the book. Don't go and download it. Buy the book and read the book. Because the way to get through these books is actually to read a chapter and go through it and give a couple of days and go back and read the chapter and then go on to the next chapter instead of going from cover to cover. You know, I'm very busy in my job. And one of my downsides of perfectionism is trying to cover too many books. And I've ultimately come back to the point of trying to get stuff off my book list on my phone. And I want to say, I've been through a lot of books. These two books are by far the best books I have read in this space in the last 10 years. You know, they're not medical books. I love going back on books that I've written, or I've read years ago and see my yellow highlighter and what I felt was important when I was reading it and to come back at them again. And it's, uh, it's fascinating what you can pick up from that even 10 years before. Lastly, the best advice you were given in life. Oh, I'd say never stop dreaming. Firmly believe that uh, I firmly believe that anything is possible. I think if you focus on things, I think if you focus on a bigger goal in life, you can achieve it. I think the challenge people have is they give up. I think the other challenge is that if you persist, you can achieve. I've been at what I do for I'd say twenty years. Yes, I came across lifestyle medicine in two thousand and ten. I did an MBA back in the early stages of my career, thinking that would change my whole life, that I would find myself. I think it did help me. I think it gave me a better relationship with the corporate business world, which I really appreciate. But the reality is before that, at that time, I got involved in technology. I was involved in a telemedicine company. I've been involved in a number of different projects of that nature, but I've only actually come to do this in the last three to four years. So I do believe strongly in having that bigger, bigger goal and that persistence and sticking to it. And honestly, I was thinking about these things, I'd say, when I was away in America, uh, when I was coming to the latter stages, that I could really achieve anything. Whereas in medical school, I learned an awful lot about the biology and the anatomy of the human body. I never really learned about how I could think in a much bigger space and how it can make things happen for me. So uh, I really encourage that. I meet lots of people because of the work I do around career transition and career change. And they're thinking about the retirement day and when it might happen and they're almost declining. And I believe that as I did in my own book, talk about the first half of your career, 20 to 45 and the second half from 45 to 70 and, and that you need to keep growing or else you're dying. And I can hear from you the passion of almost like a midlife career change that you're now encountering and it's lifting every time you speak because you're energized towards something new rather than you're kind of playing out the end of your time. And that's something I think that 
must play into someone's health. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as we said about the feeling and enjoying the exercise and the energy, enjoying your purpose in life and the energy of using your imagination and living your dreams and enjoying life is so, so important for your health. But it's so, so important for your mental and your physical health. And I know a lot of people who work out there get miserable after about 10 years in the job and say, I hate this and why am I doing this? And I have all the bills to pay and say, sure, I'll stay like this forever because I can't change this. And I'd honestly say to you, you don't have to change it. You can bring things in on board that you like doing. You can find other avenues that you like doing. It doesn't involve a massive seat change in what you're doing. And I honestly say to you, that's made the difference. Having mentors is also extremely valuable, even if your mentor is a personal trainer to get you going in the gym. But having mentors to try and help guide you or having a mentor in work that will help you guide you is exceptionally beneficial to help you. And I, I don't think we should have to live in the life that you go to work, you work your arse off, you pay the bills, you go home, you do this, you do it that way. Because A, it's exceptionally boring. B, you lose interest in it. And then it just leads to a cascade of bad behaviors, which from a health point of view is exceptionally bad. Robert, I could listen to you all day. And uh, I've written down a few P's here to highlight what I believe you bring. You're purposeful, you're pioneering, you're passionate, you're practical, and you're personal, you're human. And I think that's the most important thing that I've learned here is that we're all humans. We all have frailties. We all might fail in some of our New Year's resolutions. But the most important thing is that we have that purpose to get up again and resilience to keep at and be the best that we can be. So thank you very much, Robert, for your time. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of listeners who take an awful lot from this podcast. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.